Amen. Y'all remember when uh, Peter says uh, we, are, we are a royal priesthood? Yeah. I love that. That word in the Greek is basilica or basilia. And uh, uh, it means, a, in other words, a kingly priesthood or a king-like priesthood. I want to talk to you today about that. In the last couple months, we've been talking a lot about many kings, haven't we? Yeah. Right? We opened up some subjects with King Ahab, who was a man who ruled like a petulant child. You all remember that? Yes. Did you get something from that? Yes. We talked about King Joash, which was a child who ruled like a man, Come on. Like, like a full-grown man. Man, we need some of those in our generation, yeah. don't we? Yeah. <laughs> we talked about King Jehu, who, had a, who was recklessly raised to establish a righteous throne. And we talked about jo uh, Jehonadab, or Jonadab, who wasn't a king in Israel at all, or a king of Israel at all, but he ruled in his personal domain better than most kings did. I want to talk to you today about Kingmaker. Our message today will be Kingmaker. Are you with me? Yeah. Amen. If we are a royal priesthood, a king-like priestly nation, brotherhood and group of people, then what shall we do to rule righteously with what we've been entrusted with. That's really been the subject that we've been kicking around with you for quite a while because if many of you don't know and many, some of you do know and really do understand the revelation that you are a royal priesthood, a kingly type people, then you'll care very much about how you rule and reign. Amen? Amen. Amen. How many of you know you've been given the command from God to rule and reign righteously with what God has given you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that command went out to all mankind in Genesis 1.28 as a mandate over all men. And it was an honor to you, the blood-bought bride of Jesus Christ. The Bible infers a lot of things. And sometimes it just plainly says a lot of things. The Bible does not say that you're a bride, but it infers it in many places and you believe it because it is righteously so. But do you know that your Bible speaks more about you being a kingly type people than a bride like people? It does. So how is it that we live our life and receive the fact that we are a bride waiting for our coronation day and our king coming, but not so much that we are a kingly type people seated in a in a seat uh, on a throne room together with King Jesus. I'll tell you why. Because it has to do with responsibility. It's one thing to be responsible for your life. It's a whole other thing to be responsible for many other lives. It's a whole other thing to know that you may fail, but it's a whole other world to even grasp the idea that if you do, it might affect someone else. This is why we would just prefer to be a bride waiting for a coronation day than a king like people who are responsible right now for those under your influence. But our God, he's a kingmaker. I said he's a kingmaker. Amen. Yeah. Revelation 17, 14 says it like this in the ESV. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. And he is the Lord of lords and the king of what kings. kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful 
Saints, this passage is so much more about than about political kings. It's actually about political kings, yes, and also spiritual kings that your Bible calls principalities. And it's also about God's kings in his kingdom. That is you and I. Revelation 1.5 says it like this in the King James Version. This will be fun. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests. Unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Again, in Revelation 5, 9 through 10, it picks up in the King James Version like this. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain <laughs> and hearts redeemed us. <laughs> hast redeemed us. How about that? Hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation, and hadst made us unto God, kings, and priests. And we shall reign in a platopia. That's what I call it, right? A utopia made up by Plato that call, you call it heaven, where we go to get a few little wings and fly like angels and float on a cloud for eternity? No, on earth. When King Jesus came, he ushered in the kingdom. It is and also coming. And it starts by the transformation of your life. If you don't rule and reign rightly as kings on the earth, someone else cannot see that King Jesus is alive. Revelation 5.10 in the ESV interprets it. Same thing for you like this. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth in Hebrew that word is Malek and it is for the kings that you see in the Bible but it also but it first started as a general term that just simply meant someone with authority power or overall influence in a realm in Greek it's translated into Basilius which is the same thing it's generally one who has been given authority Power or honor? Is there anyone in the kingdom that you honor because you know they love the Lord and they're God representation and you're like, I respect that, I'd honor that. Yes. Rightly so. It's a righteous thing to do. Has anybody in this place been given authority of power from King Jesus to wield and rule and reign with right here on earth? Yes. Anybody believe that? Anybody read that in the Bible and say, that's me? Yes. Amen. Well, then, therefore, you are a kingly type people. God's making some kings out of you. Amen? Amen. Listen, I'm not talking to you in Hebrew this morning, nor in Greek. I'm talking to you in English. So let me tell you what the Easton Bible Dictionary says about what we're talking about in English. Because all of you can't see that. I'll go ahead and tell you what it says. It says that the scripture, the word king in English, biblical definition, not Webster's dictionary of what this world tries to define for you, because mm, that's an issue in our day and age. Just trying to tell you your Bible defines king as a very general as very generously used to denote one in one that has been invested with authority, whether 
extensive or limited. Either way. In Joshua 12, 9, there are 31 kings in Canaan. In Judges 1, Adonai Bezek subdues 70 kings. And in your New Testament, watch this. The Roman emperor is spoken of as a king in 1 Peter chapter 2. Why is that an issue? Well, the Romans didn't have kings. They had emperors and they had Caesars. Nevertheless, your Bible says they are kings. Herod Antipas, who was only a tetriarch and uh, to me, a paper king. If I was Matthew or Mark, which called him a king, I wouldn't call him that at all. I'd call him a paper king because neither his lineage nor his throne gave him the right to be king. And this is why King Yeshua didn't say a word to him because that man was sitting on his throne. Oh, we'll move on from that. It goes on to say that this title is also applied to God himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And to Christ, the Son of God, in 1 Timothy 6 and Matthew 27. The people of God are also called kings in Daniel 7, Matthew 19, and as we saw in Revelation 1. Watch this. This one will be interesting. In Job 18, death is called the king of terrors. I'd like to say that king means a little bit more than what you think. It's not just those who are seated in power in our generation, saints. Yahweh was sole king of the Jewish nation in 1 Samuel 8 and also in Isaiah 33. But there came a time in history of that people when a king was demanded. Do you remember that when that time was? That was in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They demanded the king that they have a king. And what was the problem? They demanded that they had a king of their own, of their own choosing and in their own time. Samuel rebukes them for this, but they cried out, no, give us our king. We want it now. Saints, you live in a democracy, am I right? <laughs> well, I mean, debatable. At least they tell you that. I mean, yeah, anyway. You, know. you live in a democracy with a president. Nevertheless, the president rules like a king. If you lived in England, you would be living under a Monarchy, which is a king when they have one and a queen when they don't. They've been doing that for 1,200 years. If you lived in ancient Israel in any certain given time, you would have lived under a theocracy where God was king. It is a misunderstanding that when Israel asked for a king that God ceased to be their king. God always intended that when Israel had a king that he would be the king of kings. Why? Because it was a foreshadowing of what you and I live in today. Everything in your older covenant or older testament is a foreshadowing of what was to come. And now you get to live in. Amen. Amen. That was a kingdom ruled by the king of kings, Yeshua, and governed by his kings, you and I. Can anyone here tell, uh, today tell me uh, who Israel's first king was? Saul. Can anyone here tell me who's God's first choice for king among men were? We're working out our timelines here. 
In Judges 8.22 is the first mention of Israel trying to make a man king. His name was Gideon. You remember that? In 1 Samuel 8.4, Israel again asked and then demanded that they have a man as their king. His name was Saul. But God's king, his first king, was the first man that he invested his image and authority in his likeness to. The first king, as biblical definition of king, was Adam. A biblical king in the time we live in is a person who has been invested with his image and invested with his likeness, just like King Yeshua. Who is that? Say, that's me. Let's talk a little bit about the process of a kingmaker this morning. Can we do that? Yes. I've brought you back to the beginnings so that we can bring you to where we are now. Revelation 5.12 says this in the ESV. And you can turn with me there. Say there when you're there. I'm going to theologically walk you a little bit through the word. Then we're going to move on to practicality. And then I'm going to just ask you a few simple questions. And I'll let you go home with that. Is that okay? Good. Amen. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Are you there? Yes. I'll wait for you. It's okay. I'm in no rush. I mean, I'm not short-winded or anything. There you go. Let's pick up in chapter 5, verse 12. Anybody have a, a chapter break and a title heading there? Okay. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death then came through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Stop. There's a term here that theologians use for Adam's position in all mankind. It's called federal headship. You ever heard that? Federal headship. No, Adam's not the captain of the... Uh, Starship Enterprise. It's just a fancy way of saying he's a single representation over an entire race. He's the beginning of. Right? Meaning like, uh, uh, kind of like Joe's the uh, federal head of the Gizzies and Morgan's the federal head of the Hunters. Kind of. You know why? Because they didn't start the name, but if they did, they'd be the federal headship of that name. Are you with me? Okay. Adam was the federal head of the entire human race. Earth was his kingdom and Eden was his throne. A type and shadow of the federal head over all creation, Yeshua, the son of all creation. Are you following me? There's something key here in this verse that every one of us must understand before you can rule and reign as kings in the earth. As Genesis 1.28 tells you to do so. Do you remember Genesis 1.28? It said that you were to do a couple things 
as a human being. You were to be fruitful. You were to multiply. You were to fill the earth. You were to subdue it. And you were to exercise dominion in all things. You were the crown creation over this earth. It was your mandate to do so. If you don't, it doesn't get done. So let me ask you a question here so we can get this key point and then we can move on. Is deception sin? Yes, it's demonic, and if you're being deceitful, then you're being satanic. Is disobedience sin? Yes. Your Bible calls it witchcraft because if you're being willfully disobedient, you are trying to control the outcome in your favor. Witchcraft, control, deception, demonic. Go with me for a minute back to the garden. You can close your eyes if you have to. We do something called the illusion of the first time. We try to clear everything we think we know, and when we put our shoes in, in the narrative, and we close our eyes and we say, Lord, show us what was going on here. And so Adam's in a garden that he was given to cultivate, to work it, right, to make it flourish. He was given an easer, a bride, right, together to guard and to govern, right, and to make sure that they both live in the presence of God and appear at all their point in life. But one day something's going on in the narrative and it says, well, Eve's looking at this tree, right? This tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? And, and it's the one that said the Lord said, don't touch that, right? She's hanging out in this beautiful garden all of a sudden, right? And something's going on, right? A serpent, if you would, right, comes and he starts to speak to her and said, did God say? And then it draws her into doing something that was forbidden. She touched it. Not only she touched it, she ate of it. Right? Well, it doesn't say that Adam's like hanging out right there and going, man, just don't do that. Adam is like, it, does, it doesn't say that for you. Adam could have been just hanging out, working the, working the ground, working the garden. But what he wasn't doing was garden Eve in the moment. And so she has an opportunity, there's space between them. And she has an opportunity to fall, in, fall into deception. And Adam comes along one day and he's like, da-da-da-da-da, right? Ooh, man, presence of the Lord, the cool of the day. This is amazing like every day. And all of a sudden he's looking for Eve and she's fine as ever. And all of a sudden he's like, you look different. Something looks different about you. And Adams decides, well, I know what I'll do. I'll save you. And well, he says, here's how I'll save you. I'll enter into that with you, and then I'm going to pull you back out, right? And so he's like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go down in your pit, and I'm going to pull you back out, and we'll all be good. And all of a sudden, it doesn't work for Adam. And Adam didn't discover something. He's not the savior. He's just the governor. Something changes in the moment and now both of them have transgressed, passed over the limits that were given to them. And they are now hiding naked, no longer out in the open, out in the light, out in the presence of their throne and their kingdom they've been given. Something's changed. But that's interesting because the scripture says that well, sin entered this world through Adam. 
Romans 5.12 says that sin came into the world through one man, Adam. Now, you just agreed with me that deception and disobedience is sin. And wasn't deception and disobedience already happening before Adam? Sure, there's a serpent deceiving. There's deception, right? There, there's disobedience in Eve, not Adam at the moment. But isn't it true that the serpent was deceptive before Adam and sin was in Eve? Yes. Listen to me. Although both the serpent and Eve suffered the consequences of their sin, it was Adam that was held responsible for the outcome. And it says that it was Adam that allowed sin to enter the world. Why? Because Adam was the federal head over this world. Adam was God's crown creation within creation set over it to steward this creation we call earth and to rule and to reign over it. It was his sole responsibility in his kingship to govern over what was given to him. And so when transgression happened inside of his kingship, the Lord of all creation, the king of kings moved beyond those people and came to him. How important is your kingship? Saints, how important is it for you to rule and to reign properly? We're going to see some of that this morning. Are you ready? Yeah. yeah. Adam was given a kingdom called earth to rule and to reign in. Adam was given a throne called Eden to subdue and to multiply from. And Adam was given even limits. They called it law. You know what it was? Do not touch. To govern with. And Adam was given lives he was responsible for to be fruitful with and to multiply with. Somebody say amen to that. All this set the stage for the cultivation of Adam's kingship. In God's words, here's your garden. You must work it. Adam was God's first king and Adam was given everything needed to become a really good one, just like you and I. But Adam sinned when Adam failed to guard what was given to him and uphold, watch this, the image that was created in him. What was Adam given? The image and the likeness of the king of kings. The Lexham English Bible says it like this in Genesis 1:26 through 28. Not only does the Lexham English Bible say this, but most Hebrew scholars point out that if you could read literal Hebrew, it plainly reads this way. Then God said, let us make man as our image. You usually read that as let us make man in our image. Hebrew scholars say that this reads exactly this way in Hebrew. The Lexham English Bible picked up on it and translated it like this. Let us make man as our image as our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the likes, uh, livestock over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man as his own image, as the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves from the earth. Why is this important? In and as 
can cause you to think dramatically different. Are you with me this morning? In his image says you simply look like him. As his image says you were put here as a physical representation, as a physical demonstration, and as a physical projection or image of God in his absence in the flesh to the rest of the creation. We live in a time with 3D images and holograms and everything like that. His image and his likeness he wanted to display on the earth. And so from heaven, light shines, boom, and projection, man comes forth as his image. In a sense, lost people should look at your life and be able to imagine what it would look like to meet King Jesus himself because of the way that you demonstrate life. <laughs> How important is accurate obedience? If that's a stretch for you, then it's because that we have become a distorted image being restored to the likeness of the image of Christ. This is what happened in the garden. Man did not fall from perfection. Adam was never perfect. He was in perfect relationship with God. Therefore, his image was perfected in the moment together with God. But as soon as they were separated, what happened? The image was distorted. You ever watch a fuzzy TV? You're like, need to, no, I need to dial it in. Well, this is what the Lord's doing this morning. He's going to dial you in. Adam was created as God's image on display to creation. But when he sinned, the image became distorted. The crown began to tornish and his kingship, his rule and effects of it that he was responsible for. Began to bring death instead of life. Here's the problem. That kingdom was never his alone. So God had to do something about it. It belonged to God. It belonged to God. And now God's repu uh, reputation was tarnished and the one created to represent it displayed a twisted image of who God was. But God wasn't done. He already knew that was happening. Now there was going to be a fuller image because Adam was never really ever put there to be a perfect, perfect image anyway. He was just a beginning place. And a shadow of what was to come. The scripture is going to tell you that. Romans 5.13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Now he's talking about a Mosaic law here. But I'll submit to you today if you go back and look at what I'm talking about. Do not touch was also a representation of a law. Before sin entered the world. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Wow. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. You know what this means? Th this means from Adam to Moses before the law was given, sin was unchecked. There was no, there was no justification for it because it was coming. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam. That word transgression there just means it's different than sin. It means you went over the limit, right? You crossed, you crossed the line. 
transgression. Adam crossed the line. But there were others that crossed the line in a different way. He's talking about celestial sin and terrestrial sin. There was sin in the heavens and sin on the earth. But I'm going to talk about those things to you today. I want to talk to you about what it says next. Who was, somebody say was, was. a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Are you with me? All right. Adam was the king of death. Moses was the king of law, but they both pointed to another that would come. He was the king of life. What's the commonality between them? They're all kings. What's the difference? One brought life, one brought law, and the other brought, uh, one brought death, one brought law, and the other brought life. Adam was given his kingship, but he trespassed through poor leadership. Have you ever been there? Adam was given the right to rule and to reign and to lead strong, but he he led in a weak way. He trespassed in poor leadership of what was given to him and weak leadership in what was given to him. But Jesus, somebody say, but Jesus. But But when Jesus came, he came bearing a free gift. That is the power and game changer of every king that has been created. It's actually the power of the kingmaker. The one thing that cultivates and creates kings out of mere men is about to be given to you. Are you ready for this? I'm slow walking you through this scripture because so many of you have read over it so many times, but you never really read it. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, the poor leadership. For if many died through one man's weak leadership, much more have the grace, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. And the free gift, <laughs> how many times are you going to say free gift? Like, tell me what the free gift is, right? That's three times already. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. Man, anybody ever give you a gift and you're like, could I please open it? Could I please open it? Could I just please open it? Right? He's building up something for you right here. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following the weak leadership, trespass, brought condemnation. Has your weak leadership ever brought condemnation? Yes, first to you and then others to others, right? But the free gift, four times, following many attempts at strong godly leadership, brought justification. Following many attempts... This free gift brought justification following your many attempts and, and failures. But if, or for if, because of one man's failed attempt at kingship, failed attempt at federal headship, failed attempt at image bearing, failed attempt at ruling as God for God, death reigned through that one man, how much more? It's called Calvary Comer. How much more? Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift, pause, for the love of God, somebody tell me what that free gift is. Righteousness. Righteousness. Reign in the life through the one man, 
Jesus Christ. You read that and you say, hey, righteousness reigns through him. The scripture goes on to tell you to say that that righteousness is now given to you or you could not reign, period. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation of all men, that's Adam's trespass, so one single act of righteousness leads to justification. And therefore, life is now available to all men. I don't know if you're getting this. One man's sins brings death to the entirety of the whole human race. Another man, the God man, comes and one righteous act on his behalf brings something totally different. We call it the great exchange. And it brought what? Justification. What's justification? Just as it never happened. Can we see and all agree that when one man, Adam, sinned, it still had the power today to shipwreck the entire lives and bring many to death? Is death still present? Then that power is still at work. Then why is it so hard for us to believe, even though your Bible plainly tells you that through one single man who just so happened to be God in the flesh, that by one single act, he holds the right and he possesses the power to take your failed attempt at life and make a kingly life out of it. When Jesus came, he gave you the free gift of righteousness. Just like Adam, who is not God, but rather made in the image as God for God. When he gave you the free gift of righteousness, it wasn't your righteousness. When you read righteousness, there it's not your righteousness. It's his free gift of righteousness. And he now makes you, the Greek word there means uh, as you ought to be. Dikaiosenu, as you ought to be righteous. He came and made you as you ought to be. Paul goes and writes it like this. He says, you've been seated in heavenly places. You've been seated upon the throne in heavenly places together with Christ Jesus. You are co-heirs to his kingdom. That's a bombshell of a statement. It's not his kingdom. It's now our kingdom. <laughs> we love to say it's King Jesus' kingdom. We're just a servant in the house of God. Doorkeepers in the house of God, right? Never together with Christ Jesus. I'm sorry. The word tells you you are whether you like it or not. Why? It was so you could succeed where Adam failed. It was so that you could rule and reign in the image and the likeness of the righteous king of kings. You are a image of the king of kings. How many of you can be a, a servant because Jesus is a servant? But you can't be a king for some reason because that one's just for him. You can't have both saints. It really literally stagnates your growth. Second Corinthians 5.16 says it like this. You can listen to me. You don't have to turn there. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. 
I don't regard you according to the flesh. Why? Because the word tells me I can't. I have to regard you according to the word says about you. You are an image and likeness of Christ standing right before me. Number one, that will help me treat you a little better. Number one, it'll help me see your potential and where it should go. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The oldest past, behold, the new has come. That's not an old, good old boy made better. That's a brand new creation. Like you went from like a fish to a human, a human to a whatever. Like that's what it's talking about. Like a whole new species of people. You're a whole new species of people within mankind. The oldest passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ Jesus reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you all remember that? Katalaga, funny word in Greek. It meant the great exchange. He gave you a ministry. Every single one of you are full time ministers in this place. Your ministry is the great exchange, reconciliation. He, you give him everything that you are and he gives you everything he is. That's a phenomenal great exchange. Like you're still wrestling with that. It's so great. That is in Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the entire creation to himself, not counting their crossing the line, trespass, touching the tree against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You ever wonder where you should be going to tell somebody? <laughs> there it is. Therefore, we are ambassadors. When a foreign ambassador shows up to America from a, uh, from a monarchy, that ambassador should as, should as well just be wearing a crown. Because he is the king in, in, in their shoes. And they must be treated that way. And Paul is playing on this for you in a moment to try to teach you something deeper that was already happening in the garden. You were made in the image and likeness of the king of kings. Therefore, you are kings. For Christ, watch this, because God, he's making his appeal through us. He's telling a story. You are now being utilized to tell the great exchange. And he's telling a lot more, right? Why? Because your kingship isn't now all that great some days. But you know what, what that says about what's going on? It says a whole lot about him and not a whole lot about you. Because everybody already knows you fail. But what they don't realize is how much he succeeds. God's making an appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. It's so disarming, right? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become as we ought to be. The righteousness of God. Amen. Chapter six, verse one, terrible chapter break says this. Working together with him. What? With him. Then we appeal to you. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Don't make it meaningless. It's not meaningless. It's everything. What is working together with him? Not working for him. Working together with him. So many of us have been made kings 
but live like peasants in the name of Jesus at the cost of the image. Why? Because that's not the image. Jesus is not a peasant. He's a king. So when you act like a peasant, but you've been made a king, what are you saying? You're distorting the image. That's not the image. That's not his likeness. You don't have the right to live like a peasant. You've been made kings. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I helped you. Salvation is so much more than I got saved from the wrath of God or I'm going to get a ticket to heaven. Salvation literally in and of itself means healing to that distorted image. Behold, now is the time for favor. When? Now is the time for favor. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Saints, do you want to know how God actually makes a king? Where do you think you should turn to in your Bible if you want to think about God making a king? Okay. We're going to have to back up before because God always gives you what you need before you need it. Before Israel had a king over them like the other nations, he already told them they were going to have a king. And he permitted it. Deuteronomy chapter 17. says everything you can find is in Torah. Period. We can hard press and say everything's found in Genesis. And then I can tell you it's probably found in Genesis 1. Maybe you need chapter 2. Just saying. But if you sit with me long enough, we're going to get back to Genesis 1-1. And if you, I really love you, we'll go behind that. That get me in trouble. <laughs> Those are just fun times. Deuteronomy 17, 14. Anybody have a title heading, chapter head? What? The king. Laws concerning kings. You know why this is interesting? Israel didn't have a king here yet, but they were going to. And God prophesies it. Verse 14. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, when you do, and you possess it and dwell in it. And then you say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations that are around me. Verse 15, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. What do we call that? Permission. Yeah. Whether it was a good idea or not, it was a God idea. And he knows he was going to use it. Indeed. You may set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. How many of you have heard that God did not want Israel to have a king? That is wrong. Number one, God did not want the people to choose their own king. God reserved the right to choose his own king for her, Israel, because he wanted a king that would be like him, a strong leader with a godly heart. Friends, when you let God choose your leadership, it may not be what you always want, <laughs> but it's always what you need. Number two, God also had an appointed time in which he would enthrone a king in Israel. He reserved that time for himself. 
You can make sacrifices all you want, but if you don't make the right sacrifice, it is not a sacrifice that the Lord will receive. Saints, God is a really good kingmaker. And he always positions you for success. But he won't give it to you before you're ready. But he's always making you ready. What do they say? Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Because when you come to that place, you need to be ready to carry that crown. Your Bible says at least five crowns that you'll receive as a believer. And, uh, and when you come to the book of Revelation, it says you're going to lay down those crowns right at his feet. You want them to be shiny, better than what they were given to you? Or you want them to be corroded, corrupted, and rusted? Israel chose a man of their own choice and prematurely when they want it. Because, and it caused what? A whole lot of unnecessary pain and problems for them. So number one, God wanted them to have a king, but he wanted to choose it for himself. Number two, he wanted a king for him, but he wanted to choose it when he said. What was the problem with King Saul? He was chosen prematurely and from among the people. How'd that go? <laughs> it didn't go well. So then somebody said David earlier. Yeah, right. David was always in the line being ready to be raised up at the right time. Hmm. But you know what they did? He let them. You ever had... You ever, you ever like feel free to do something? You're like, that's not sin. I'm going to do it anyway, right? You do it and you're like, that wasn't really a good thing. Why didn't God stop me? Well, because he allows many things in your life. And it might be good, but it's not God. And then you learn from it. So he allowed it so that you could recognize him in it. Because you were probably getting off track. I love this. You know why? Because I think it's another perfect type and shadow of your sanctification process that God knew was coming. Your kingship. You have all been made kings before you were ready. So that you might become just like the king of kings. Meek and mild, gentle of heart, powerful yet humble. You know what will humble you? Being responsible for a kingdom that you don't know how to actually accomplish. Yeah. It'll humble you. Are you ready for the 10 kingmakers in Deuteronomy? Yeah. The 10 kingmakers are 10 requirements to reign righteously. Anybody need those this morning? Yes. Deuteronomy 17, 15 is a wellspring of life for your kingship. It says it right here, Deuteronomy 17, 15. You must choose from among you, from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turns away. Nor shall he require for himself excessive silver or gold. <laughs> Dang it. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in the book, in a book, a copy of the law. Approved by the Levitical priest. 
and it shall be with him and he shall read it in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and these statues and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up among his bro- above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandments either to the right or the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom and his children his children's children in all of Israel. Let me show you these kingmakers that Deuteronomy just gave us. The ten kingmakers are this. Nope. There's one that looks like this. It looks like this, John. You see it in there? Did I not put it in there? I am often thorough with these things. Ten kingmakers. Number one, a king must be a man of God. Number two, a king must not acquire many horses. Number three, a king must not cause others to return. Number four, a king must not acquire many wives. Sorry, Mormons. A king must not acquire much silver or gold. Number five. Number six. A king must sit on his throne. Number seven. A king must write his own copy of Torah. Number eight. A king must keep the word on himself. Number nine. A king must read the word every day. Number ten. A king must do what the word says immediately. Stay here with me for a minute. As some of you are already about to be challenged on your kingship as I am. Number one, a king must be a man of God. Lots of men are full of spirit, but few men are full of the Holy Spirit. I said, I mean, there's plenty spiritual men. But if you're not full of the Holy Spirit, you're not fit for the kingdom that you've been called to. Just because a person is spiritual doesn't make him godly. Just because a person likes Jesus or agrees with Jesus or even wears the Christian T-shirt and attends a Christian church does not make him a man of God. Listen to me, you either radically You either look, demonstrate, and your life says, I am radically in love with Jesus, or you have yet to become like Christ. When God makes a king, that king is sold out. Somebody say sold out. out. He is sold out for God's plan and for God's land. And he is sold out for the name of Jesus. He is sold out for the message of the gospel. And he is sold out for giving his life for the advancement of God's people. Because you are co-heirs with the kingdom. When God makes a king out of you, every resource, every influence, everything you possess in your treasury and in your war chest belongs to God for the advancement of the kingdom. 
Israel was warned not to place someone in authority over their lives that were unequally yoked to Yahweh. Who were not submitted to anything other than the spirit of being set apart for God's use. When you are filled with the spirit of God, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh. Right. The spirit of set apartness, set apart, set apart, set apart. That's what you're called to be when you're set apart over here. Right. For Jesus, when you gave your life to him. Now, what's going to happen to you as you increase in your trust and faith in Jesus? You're going to be more set apart. And guess what? You don't have to wonder what's going to happen next year, because guess what? You're going to be more set apart. Why? Because you're being you're being filled with his spirit. Right. You man, man, I made some sacrifices in the kingdom. I've grown so far. Amen. That's a good place to start again. That's the spirit of set apartness. Why do you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It's not to speak in tongues, prophesy and all these other things. Right. It's because you can't do this without it. Yes. If you can't yield every single part of your body, including your tongue, eyes, ears, everything. Right. Whatever that one percent is, God's after it. Yeah. He's after it. You know why? Because he knows that's what will corrupt your entire kingdom. Yeah. Wherever you won't give him lordship. This is what it means to be a man of God. And God's saying, you must not choose for yourself a king that is outside of that. You must choose for yourself and be a king that is of God. To be a man of God is to be totally separated unto himself. That what's, that's what separates the boys who fill all these churches from the men who actually fill the kingdom. Amen. Too many man child in these generations. But we're going to fix that because number two, he said it. God's king must not acquire many horses for himself. Saints, God's kings do not rule through carnality. They reign because of the cross. Horses represented military might in the Bible. We've said it to you before. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. You're strong in a lot of areas, but if it's not guarded or filtered through the Holy Spirit, it'll probably be the thing that causes you to fall. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. And on the other side of the coin, accommodation of weakness is a devastation to your kingship. If you don't bring your weaknesses into the light where God will transform them into power, they will be the thing in the background that usurps your throne. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 says it like this. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were before you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. When I read that, I said, oh, now I make sense. I'm like, Lord, there's so many people who can do this a whole lot better than me. But he's like, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a man just say yes, 100. But God choose, chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Oh, you are kings, but he is the king of kings and your rulership is about him ruling through you. But boy, does he need some vessels. Better yet say he wants some. Saints, your talents 
your educations, your ability to produce for yourself, your physical capabilities and amazing self-effort are not what makes you an effective king. These things in your life are God-given, but your ability to trust God with whatever you have or do not have is how you rule and reign. Whether it's knowledge, anybody wants some more knowledge, you feel like that'll, that'll be that better for you and you'll make you more effective. It's not what he's using in you. What about understanding? I don't have understanding. And if I get some more, then I'll better be a more effective person for Jesus. What about clarity? How many of you just want how many of you want some clarity so that you can just be more obedient? <laughs> That's not trust, saints. You don't have to trust what you don't see or don't have. You have to trust what you don't have and don't see. Do You get that? And his whole economy of the kingdom is based on trust. Wow. Am I getting your attention this morning? Vision, physical abilities, talents. The whole world's built on those things and it's going to fall. But his kingdom is built upon the rock. Your trust grounded obedience in the finished work of King Jesus. Somebody give me an amen for that. All that to say this, you represent God. When you gave your life to King Jesus and you denounced your allegiance to the kingdom of the devil and gave your life to the kingdom of God, you now represent God. You are the image and likeness of God here on earth. You're the body of Jesus Christ. The head, federal head is in the heavens. Wow. You were literally put in that position for other people to watch him do impossible things through you. Not possible things, impossible things for you and through you for them. Anybody ever get encouraged by watching another person's life and you're like, man, I'm struggling with that, but they're overcoming in that area? That's God. He's doing that for you. If you saw it, it's a benefit to you. So you should go thank those people and God. Thank you for enduring. That gives me more courage to endure. People watch your life, saints. Why? Because you're kings. Kings are on display. Did you know you were on display? If you travel for a minute with Jesus for a while and start to pay attention, you'll start to pay attention and see that your life, people are watching your life. They're watching your life. They're watching your body language. You don't even have to say anything. You say you love Jesus, but your body language says another. Which one do you think they're going to believe? You know what that means? The more you show off, the less he can be seen. The more you use your natural powers to cushion your throne, the less they can see his throne. This is why most Americans don't serve God today, because they're too well taken care of. They don't really think they need him. Oh, but they do. Every king needs provision to operate in his kingdom, and God knows that. But he must not care about nor live his life to accumulate excess that shelters him from supernatural dependency, or he will never see supernatural breakthroughs. I came into the kingdom with no talents, no money. 
No resources. That's the best thing that ever happened to me. You know why? Because I've seen the supernatural provision of God. I know God's supernatural economy. You know why? Because I had nothing. I showed up with nothing. All I have was him. All I have is him. And all I need is him. Proverbs 13, 8 says, The ransom of a man's life is his wealth. But a poor man hears no threat. What would you do if you hear that? We're talking about your kingship today. Anybody want to be a, anybody want to be a king like the Lord's asking you to be a king? Maybe you have too much. Because a poor man hears no threat. How many times have you been threatened by the enemy? Oh man, I got this. And well, what happens if I don't have it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. At that point, the enemy has you by the... But a man who has nothing laughs at his enemies. <laughs> it's like, you can threaten me with that devil, but I don't have anything worth taking. And if you took that worldly thing from me, it's not worth what you think it is to me. And you're not... You are actually helping me to be in a greater advantage, not a lesser advantage. A lot of people admire lives that are led by faith. We're not supposed to admire them. We're supposed to live them. Yeah. A poor man hears no threats. It's not an easy thing to watch a man never reach his potential because, well, he came from so much or he has so much. It'd be better for you to be a king and give it all to the Lord that you might Stop being threatened every day so much when you don't even know it. Number three, God's kings must not cause people to return to Egypt to acquire horses either. God's kings are inspirational far more than they are informational. How many of you spend all of your life, right, just gathering more knowledge, understanding, equipping yourself, right? The thing that changes people's life are inspirational lives, inspiration, pneuma, spirit, right? When the Lord does something supernatural through you, that's far more than he does through the person who has 17 degrees in biblical studies. He chose unschooled, ordinary men. And you know why they changed history? Because their lives were inspirational. They were literally vessels for the spirit to work through. Wow. He takes the weak things of the world to shame the wise. And how did he, as does he do that? His supernatural Ruha HaKodesh blows through them and they become an instrument of warfare against the wisdom of this world. Every king has been given influence. And kings are in a position of influence. Saints, you have influence in this world. Your life steers people in one direction or another. If you were made a king, if you lived in an actual mid-century kingdom right now and a guy's sitting on a throne with a crown on his head and he's leading poorly because he's like, they put this crown on my head, but I don't really believe it or I don't care about it or I'm just going to like, like, reap its benefits and not deal with its responsibilities, how do you think you living in that kingdom would go for you? 
Welcome to this generation. Because the body of Christ is in this position too until she becomes crowned and we become the kings that we're supposed to be. But in order to do that, you must let God make a king out of you and he's a good kingmaker. God's king must not, say must not, cause people to return to Egypt nor acquire horses either. 1 Corinthians 4 says it like this in verse 8. Already you have all you want, Paul says. He's being sarcastic. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign. I wish that you would reign so that we might share in your rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to this world, to angels and to men. Another translation says we become like men on procession. God is, is using us in this world to show this world something. He uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise so that they might see God and turn to him before it's too late. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake. He's being facetious. He doesn't think himself a foolish man. He thinks to the world they see him as a fool. Is that okay for you? We are fools for Christ's sake, but for you we are wise. We are weak, but we are strong. You are held in honor, but we are... uh, What's that word say? Oh, you don't have it up here. (laughs) I'm looking at it, sorry. Verse 11, to the the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. These are men of God. You think you need a roof on your head? You don't have to have one. It's a benefit. Anybody got a roof over their head they go home to tonight? That makes you rich. You are wealthy. You are rich people. And we labor, working with our hands. We are reviled. Uh, or we, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He must not be talking about the American church. I do not write these things to make you unashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He said, I said all these things and I'm saying, listen, we're family. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do have many fathers. He's saying you don't have many examples of this. For I become your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel and I urge you imitate us. Wait, what? No, Paul, you're homeless, persecuted, (laughs) slandered. That can't be God. That can't. I don't know, Paul. Saints, when you made the great exchange, you gave your life to God and he gave his eternal life to you. Reminder. In return, you are now a representative of life. No longer death. And you need to redefine that according to what the the Bible says it is. God shared his kingdom with you and he is showing you how to rule and reign through life. 
You are a model of what it looks like to trust when you do not understand, believe in the midst of doubt, and remain joyfully faithful even when everyone else does not. You are now king. Somebody say kings. You are now a king that is to never look back. Never. Never to look back. Never to revert back to the way that you used to live, the way you used to think, the way you used to operate, the way you used to get to a certain point. No longer. You scratch it all and you pick up the mind of Christ even in the things you don't understand and don't know yet. You follow him and then he will show you. Because when you do so, you provide direction for the loss. Do you understand that? When you live like this, you provide direction for a lost world that cannot see. And you provide promise for a redeemed world that's walking waywardly and calling themselves walking godly. Wow. The scripture is clearly telling you a godly king must not live in a manner that causes others to return back to their slavery to seek power. How many of you have returned back? To the way that you used to do things because it used to work for you. And when you got there and tried it again, for some reason it didn't work. And actually it had a different consequence. Because you're a new creation. You're a new creation. If you were a fish turned into a human and then you went back to swim again, you would have a consequence that was different than before. You could not live in that realm any longer. You have gills, you have lungs, it doesn't work. It's the same for the redeemed. You can go back to Egypt and walk and think and live in the way that you used to. It's not going to work for you. It's actually going to kill you. A king that God makes never gives carnal counsel when it seems logical. Never gives an answer when he doesn't have one. How many of you, you get... I'm a, I love the Lord. I'm a, woo, I am a king, right? And somebody asks you a question, you're like, but you just start saying stuff. And I'm like, just say, I don't know. But I know the one who does know. Oh, somebody need to write that down. Save me a whole lot of pastoral trouble. People hurt people like that. Let's be honest, you just want to be seen wise in the moment. You don't want to, your reputation to be tarnished. <laughs> you know, when you regurgitate worldly wisdom, it causes people to walk away from God. So just be quiet and let your body language live like God. Number four, a godly king must not acquire many wives for himself. God's kings are done, watch this, with personal indulgences and the pursuit of social stature. I'm about to put a finger in a wound today. I know I moved to this land over five years ago and I'm like, this is rampant. No wonder there's no kings in this city. God's king must not acquire many wives for himself. Saints, God's kings... Wives in the Bible had more to do with social status and self-indulgence than it did with actually what you think a wife should be today. Matthew 23, 25 says this, woe to the scribes and the Pharisees, hypocrites. 
You, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. We are a self-indulged community, a self-indulged nation, a self-indulged people. Woe to those who live to be self-indulged. First Corinthians 10, 8 says we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And twenty three thousand fell in a single day. Colossians 2, 23 says it like this. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting. Watch this self-made religion, asceticism and severity of the body, meaning they call themselves of God and then they treat themselves with pain to get pleasure. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It doesn't work. We call that religion. It doesn't work. No matter how many meetings, how many times you can pray a day, how much scripture you can read, how, how many times you can repent and repentance, how many times, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It does not work to kill the sin nature in you that wants to indulge your flesh. First Timothy five, six, but she who is she who is self-indulgence is dead even while she lives. Talking about widows. She's living, but because she's self-indulgent, she's dead inside. James 5, 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. James 5, 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury. <laughs> Man, I love to be American. Thank God. Um, it's Bruce Springsteen song, something like that. I'm going to leave it alone. Second Peter 2, 10. And especially for those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. He put those two in, in together. That's interesting. It's like when he says like homosexuality, everything and disobedient parents. And you're like, why'd you loop that together? Right. Because they come from the same source. Defiling passions and you despise authority. That mean that you don't listen to it. You just don't like it. Bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. James 2. My brothers, do not show partiality as you to one. Do not show partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man is wearing, watch this, a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in a shabby clothing also comes. <laughs> this is that time that you pass up the corners and you feel guilty for not giving the guy a dollar. So you do it anyway. But then the next time you're like, where's it stop? And the poor man in his shabby clothing also comes. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. You have not. Have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Which he has promised to those who 
love him? Saints, God's kings are done with personal indulgence and pursuit of social stature. When God makes a king, he gives him one wife and he's fully satisfied in her because of her. You know why I know I'm a king? Because I got a queen sitting over there. And, and you know why I'm fully satisfied every day? Because of her. She does that. Because she knows her kingdom. We'll move on before we start telling nicknames. Sarah called Abraham. Lord, it's okay for Jen to call me king. Just saying. I mean, she can call me Lord or anything. <laughs> that wife offers him what she has to offer him is more than enough and he is fully satisfied in her because of her amen ladies wives <laughs> this is the place i get myself in trouble saints in your bible wives had to do much more with much more than just physical comfort physical companionship, and the means of growing a family. Wives were also an opportunity for indulgence in pleasure and the means of increased social stature. You remember Solomon's life, don't you? Solomon indulged in every pleasure, and this is where you get the book of Ecclesiastes. What's the whole message? Meaningless. Vanity, vanity. Meaningless. Solomon had over 700 wives, and you know what? It caused him to turn to other gods. When God makes a king, he purges him of the need to overindulge in pleasure, whether it is with his wife, whether it is with food, whether it is in fantasy, whether it is in his freedoms, whether it is in his job, whatever it might be. He purges the king of the desire to overindulge. When God makes a king, he removes the desire to be seen as anything great in the eyes of men. He doesn't need many wives. He doesn't need many attaboys. He doesn't need this increase of man. Look how great you are. Every man in this place wants to be an inch taller. That's an issue a man has to deal with. It's in his sin nature. But God made you the height you are, just saying. Men. Because if he doesn't, that king will be enslaved to the fear of man and make a prison out of his palace. You've been given a palace, but you can make it a prison real quick. If you don't know that, look at the life of Joseph who took a prison and made it a palace. Every wife acquired in the Bible increased the king's social network, his opportunity to increase his measure among men, and also his opportunity for a new way of leisure and a new opportunity for pleasure. I'm getting a little bit real with you today. But the Bible says that these are the very things that cause the hearts of kings to be turned away from God. <laughs> all of you are thinking about your pleasures and your indulgences and all that extra stuff you got in life right now. So why do we build... So why do we build our personal economies around such lifestyles? There's a reason God sent a law. Don't touch that tree in the garden. And there's a reason that God sets limits on kings. 
because you've been given power and it must be under control. The spirit self um, control is the spirit of God. What do you think the opposite thing is? Lack of control over your own self. A godly king learns to be satisfied with what God has given him. He learns not to consistently be on the hunt for more than is given to him and does not care about social stature among men nor being seen as great in the eyes of those in his life. There's an insecurity set in the hearts of men that God is supposed to cure. And if you don't cure that insecurity, you'll be challenging every man and woman around you to cure it for you. It does not work. It's a carrot, a demonic carrot being tangled, uh, dangled in front of you that'll keep you running every way but straight. God's king only cares about the approval of God. He's inoculated from the approval of men. Number five, God acquire, God's king must not acquire excess silver and gold for himself. <laughs> Y'all not going to be happy about this one. Just saying. Let's go ahead and get it out. Do you want to be a godly king that God's making you? Yes. Remember you said that. God's kings must not accumulate excess. I'm sorry, but the American dream was never God's dream. Luke 12, 13 says it like this. Some in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance for me. But he said to them, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetedness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. How many of you are still working for some more possessions so that you might be satisfied? <laughs> we're at the middle of the 10 right now. That's usually the deep part and then it works, you know, the other way. It's funny that this one plays out like this. Doesn't that remind you of the 10 commandments? It also reminded me of the Beatitudes. Just saying, further study. Money is from God. The provider. And if you have more than you need, it better have a kingdom purpose on it or it is going to usurp your heart while you occupy the throne. It's why the, it's why the Bible says that the that money is the root of all kinds of evil. I'm not saying money is evil, it's saying it's when you find it, you'll find the root of all kind of things just like a wicked web around it. When God makes a king, excess bothers that king. He does, he's uneasy until he finds out what to do with it. Because the business of God's king is a nonprofit business. Every one of you are full-time ministers. And every one of you run a nonprofit business. It's called the ministry of the kingdom. Because the business of God's kingdom is a nonprofit business, you only need enough to keep yourself in position, watch this, to advance God's kingdom. Each one of you have been called to advance his kingdom in a certain way. And therefore, he has a certain amount of money that's coming your way for that purpose. No other purpose. Excess money is the number one thing that kills kings. Either by having it 
or admiring those that have more of it than you have. One way or another, it will corrupt your kingship. It will corrupt your relationships. If you do not understand this, when God makes a king, he rids him of the desire and the pursuit of having one more dollar than he needs to accomplish what God has called him to. When God makes a king, massive amounts of money can pass through his life. Massive amounts of money can pass through a godly king's life. You know why? Because he knows that he will never accumulate it for himself because God has put him in a position to immediately invest it and leverage it for the kingdom. That's how God's kings acquire no excess and keep their heart pure while seated upon the throne. Your very first one was a must be. The last four have been must nots. Guess what happens next? You must do. You ready? Number six, a godly king must, somebody say must. must. He must sit on the throne of his kingdom. God's kings never abdicate their authority. They do not abandon their posts. They know what they're called to. They know the cost of that kingdom. They know the cost of their position. They never leave the ice. They never move an inch from their posts. They do not run from difficulty. Jude 5 says it like this in some very difficult language. He says it like this in Jude 5. Now I want to remind you, although you, were, you fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. I'm sorry, eternal security. We got more to talk about. And the angels, watch this, who did not stay within their own position of authority. They left their posts. They abandoned their place of authority, what was given to them to rule in the rain, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. <laughs> in like manner, these people also, relying on dreams, defiling the flesh, reject authority and do the same thing. It's like a husband who creates a family and children and then leaves it. It's the same thing. They abdicate their authority for some way or another. They don't keep their vows even when it hurts. God's king must sit on his throne. No matter what he makes of his kingdom. When God raises a king, that king never, say never, never, never abandon his post. He must not acquire many horses. He must not cause people to return. He must not acquire many wives and he must not acquire excess of silver and gold that when that king does that, now he will then watch this, find an amazing amount of time on his hand to actually be the man of God he was always called to be. It's not that complicated. You have complicated your life. It is not Difficult to do the will of the Lord when empowered by the Holy Spirit because you were designed to do it. You make it difficult when these other things we talked about is your life and this is not your life. Yes. 
Somebody says, you know, I, I pray with people that be filled with the Spirit all the time, and they come up like this. Fill me, Lord, fill me, Lord, fill me. I'm like, that's not how it works. You just got to let it go. And then you let it flow. That's it. Because he's trying to teach you how to live in the kingdom. Let all that garbage go so that he can flow through you. He will empower you if you just go. It's like if you put down those smartphones of yours or removed your TVs in your home or you eliminated all those things that are demanding your attention of your flesh and all of a sudden you realize, wow, I got a whole lot of time to devote to Jesus. Anybody got one of those little righteous timers on your phone that tells you how much time you spend on it each week? Yeah, you should pay attention to that. It's like if you were to change the culture of your life to center it around the needs of the kingdom instead of the needs of your kingdom, clarity would come to you all of a sudden. Do you know that the time that the screen time that you spend is altering your neuropaths? It literally changes the way you think, how you can receive and what you can do with that. <laughs> Somebody, some people in here have been praying for 10 years for a breakthrough or something. And all you needed to do was put down your phone. Yeah, that itself would be the breakthrough. <laughs> when God makes this kind of king out of you and these previous five things we just spoke about are markers of your life, everyday life. It's not that difficult to do the impossible. So it's not that difficult to do the impossible. I've, I've seen so many men come in and they get challenged about putting their Xbox down. Praise the, praise the Lord, you should do that at 15. Just saying. Because you could produce children at 15. So you can produce the advancement of the kingdom then. But maybe not because you got some things in your life that are just holding you back. Saints, the first is, first thing Moving forward, because that's what we're doing, moving forward. We're not on the don't do this. We're now do this, right? These things will give you life, you know, yeah. purpose. And they'll be very doable when we live like this. First thing you'll do when you sit down to rule and reign, instead of spending your days reacting to the consequences of the many horses. <laughs> if you were a farmer, right? Farmer, equestrianist rancher you had a lot of horses you'd have a lot of stuff to clean up each day just saying if you had a lot of wives you'd have a lot of disputes to settle and that's what we make of the kingdom when we acquire many horses and many wives we have to deal with all that so we can never deal with righteousness we have to deal with our sin nature so we can never deal right, with the overcoming power of God in our life. We are so held back and held down by these things that we can never participate in this. Let's <laughs> open the doors of the stall and let it go. Scubalon. How many of you feel held back in some areas of your ministry God's given you in life or you just hadn't made it there yet? Dang, all of you are fulfilled, huh? Uh, now the rest of you are liars. It may be because you have accumulated excess and it's weighing you down. And the Lord just gave you an answer. It may be because you have accumulated excess and it's weighing you down and holding you back. But God is making a king out of you. Amen. 
He wants to free you of these unnecessary weights so that you can sit down and actually begin to move forward and build a life worthy of the high calling that he's given you. It's time that you straighten your crown. When God makes a king that sits on his throne and thinks about his life and those that he's responsible for, he starts to make you think different. A king thinks in decades, not days. A king thinks about how their actions affect not just themselves, but other people. A king thinks ahead. A king thinks three steps ahead of the rest. Kings are not concerned about the past because they are responsible for their future and the future of those under their influence. A king is concerned about being one inch off because he knows in two years he'll be a mile in the wrong direction. A king knows that they can only control today, but a king also knows that God is in control of tomorrow. A king does not play the whole, well, I'm not really sure that I'm a son thing because, well, that's past and we put that to rest. A king knows that only sons sit on the throne. Kings are men of God living for God, not boys living for themselves, trying to convince themselves that they're doing otherwise. God's kings are securely seated, sons. Is that you? I said, is that you? God's kings are securely seated sons that have settled in their heart that they are a servant of all and got inside of God's kingdom forever. And it's not going to change. And that's the best damn life you can have. That was for you religious spirits. God's kings are securely seated sons. Amen. These next ones are going to be really challenging for you because they're now your practical points. Number seven, God's king must write for himself a copy of the entire Torah. Matthew twenty two twenty nine 29 says to the Sadducees, men who had had to do this. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Friends, I'm going to tell you right now, the scriptures and the power of God are married to one another. You won't find one without the other. And when you do, there's work to be done. The Hebrew sage Rashi says that a king was supposed to write the Torah even before he became king. And then he was to write the Torah while he was king. What does that mean? Imagine what happens to you for a minute. If you must undertake writing of the entire Torah in your own hand, what would that do to you? How long would it take you? A, a Hebrew scholar is at least four years. What would you get out of it? Think about that. You want to be a king? It is your job to write the Torah in your own hand. What would you get out of that? Somebody's already thinking, man, I don't know if I could do this. I'd be bored. You don't know what you would get out of it because you haven't done it. But God's trying to tell you you're going to get something of heavenly value out of this when you do it. It's going to make a king out of you. How valuable would that copy be once you were done with it? How, if you hand wrote the Torah for yourself. How valuable would it be? Somebody got journals in here and you kind of put them away? 
Those are valuable. That's your own thoughts. What happens when you write God's thoughts? Yeah, you should find a new appreciation for that Bible you yours because somebody did it for you, paid their price with blood so that you would have it. And the next time it's collecting dust on your shelf, remember that. Who's ready to commit to that right now? Careful with your zeal without knowledge. Because you'll keep your vow even when it hurts. Do you really want to be the king that God's trying to make out of you? Can you answer that, yes or no? Well, then don't imagine it. Do it and see what happens. Because that's what men of God, that God's making kings out of them, do. They don't think about it. They don't admire it. They do it. And Deuteronomy says, write the entire Torah down if you're a king of God. Everyone else loves to watch and admire. The people who do Deuteronomy 17 sit on their throne and rule from their throne. The people who read it, admire it, think about it, watch others occupy your throne. Because God's kings must keep the word. Number eight, on himself everywhere he goes. God's kings, saints, are responsible not only to write the word, but to love the word. You, you know what you love. Anybody got one of these? You don't hate it. John said it, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word became flesh. Now we're in reverse. The word became flesh, now the flesh became a word for you. You put it in your hands, right? Uh, your, that word that's, that's in your possession right now is like looking under a microscope at the DNA of Jesus. It's where you really get to understand what's going on. Not only does a man who God is making a king out of write the word, he never lets it leave his side. Do you get that? People ask me all the time about the backpack. They're like, you going somewhere? <laughs> no. I mean, sometimes my back's hurting, so I got it on, but it's never far from me. Because I've learned to do the word. He says, don't let the word be far from you. Why? I don't want to be caught on the front line and not having something of value for someone else. I can't retain that whole entire thing. Can you? I'm getting older, not younger. The things that I did learn, I have to relearn. I have to really work at it to keep it. Praise God, I have a physical opportunity. And you know where, what it's benefited me most of? You don't trust me all the time. I don't trust you all the time. Right? People don't trust people. They don't even trust the word. But a lot of times when they don't trust you, they'll trust the Bible. And then they're reading, especially Christians. Christians don't trust Christians. So you give them the word, but then they trust the word. Well, how do they do that if you don't have it on you? The kings of the living God must carry the word with them everywhere they go. Everywhere they go. I'm going to be honest with you, flat out. The most, most effective Christians are the ones that actually know the word, have the word, and practice the word. The other people don't. They're not as effective. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your God, Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, 
and when you arise. I'm sorry, unless you're a walking computer, you can't accomplish that. The word of God is to go with you wherever you go. When God raises a king, he raises a man that will not leave his home without God's word near his side. Because God's kings must read it. Oh my gosh. The amount of excuses for this is enormous. God's kings must read the word every day and engage with the word. God's kings are responsible to engage with the word every single day. How many of you love your food more than you love your spiritual food? If you don't know, go and see your consumption. It'll tell you. When God makes a king, that king does not grow in his kingship all by himself. That king does not, that king does not grow because he carries around the word every day with him everywhere he goes. No more than one of those dungeon and dragon people right, become a galactic warrior because they dress up in phenomenal gear. Well, they're carrying around this scene, but they never actually participated in one single cosmic battle. Listen to Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me joy and a delight of my heart. It's like he discovered something about himself. He didn't know because he didn't, just didn't do it. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of mockers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you have filled me with indignation. I ate the word and it got heavy. It's like good steak dinner. Why is my pain unceasing and my wound uncurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? It's like I ate something and... I don't know if it's set right. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you and you shall stand before me. He had to go through it. If you utter the if you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be my mouthpiece. When you eat the word. You engage with the word. When you engage with the word, it engages with you. Some of you need to get along with God and wrestle and come out with a new walk, a new way of living on a daily basis. Saints, the difference between followers and leaders are those who actually read God's word, digest God's word and wrestle with God's word until it transforms them. You're God's kings. We've established that point today. Amen. And when you study the word of God, fall in love with the word of God, the word then lives inside of you. Anybody take probiotics in here? Best probiotics you ever had. Saints, the first sign that people do not read the word are the one with the most excuses. Nine times out of ten, it's because they never tried it. So then they tell you how they can't do it. Your king, saints, need to act like it. You are designed to love God's word, but you won't know it because it's an acquired taste to your flesh. Wow. Number 10. <laughs> it's funny I lives this one at the end. God's king must do what the word says. God's kings are responsible to do what the word says immediately without reserve. Wow. 
James 1.22 says it like this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and, and, do not, and not a doer, he is like a man, watch this, who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and preserve, uh, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer and acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. Did, did you get that for a minute? The king who sees something about himself in the word and goes away and never puts that truth into practice forgets what he saw in the first place. And then he lives in self-deception as long as he lives because he never attempts. He wakes up in the morning, there's a crown on his head. And he's like, interesting. Oh, something's changed. I'm a king. And he goes away. He never sees a crown on his head, so he forgets about the crown on his head. He's like, man, this head, something's heavy on me all the time. It's just heavy on me all the time. Sounds frustrating. Like messing up my hair. It's like, not mine. It's like, my, my neck is stiff. I got shoulder pains. Something is weighing heavy on me, and I don't know why. Heavy is the head that wears a crown, but I've forgotten that I'm a king, so I'm really frustrated that it must be the Lord, it must be sin. The only sin that it is, is you've forgotten who God's called you to be. He's for, you've forgotten who you are. You need to go back to the mirror, look in it, and reestablish what God's already said. You're a king. And you can't live anything other than, or you will corrupt your crown. When God raises a king, he goes to amazing lengths, just like this sermon you just sat through. Amazing lengths to get you to do one thing, to his word. Why? Because that's when everything changes. Everything changes when you simply do his word. What was so different about Jesus in the flesh? He never failed to do the word. It doesn't take a theologian to do God's word. It takes someone who trusts God with the outcome of doing his word, even when they don't understand or when they don't believe it. That's what separates the kings from those who admire the kings. Wow. Ten simple king makers. Y'all ready to turn this message and wind it down? So you want to be a king. John, you got that slide? Yes, sir. So you want to be a king. Then you must be known as a spirit-filled Jesus fanatic. Whose power comes out of his weakness. Whose life causes others to repent, not retreat. Who chooses not to indulge in personal pleasure or purpose. And purposely refuses to be rewarded by men. They refuse. 
and doesn't ever have a lot of cash on hand. Because he is fully responsible and fully leveraged for the advancement of other believers. His time is to be devoted to learning more of the word. He is never found without a word to give on the spot because he gets up every day and searches the word for fresh revelation and eagerly anticipates his directional commands. And he does what it says, whether it comforts him or crucifies him. You must be known as a spirit-filled Jesus fanatic. What's your reputation? Because this world crucified the last king who had a godly reputation. Whose power comes out of weakness? What is your source of power? Is it your carnal capabilities? Or does it come from the sufficiency of what Jesus did on the cross for you. Because if it doesn't, that's why you're exhausted. Whose life causes others to repent and not retreat? When's the last time you confronted someone about their compromise? Does your kingship look more like Ahab or like Jesus? Does your life convict people about their lack of faith or does it encourage them not to keep looking for concessions and ways of just surviving instead of thriving in the kingdom. Who chooses not to indulge in personal pleasure and purposely refuses to be rewarded by men? Do you live for the next big TV, big rims, new fresh ride, latest iPhone, better truck, nice fresh minivan or that new fresh outfit? Does your joy depend on the amount of attaboys you receive? And are you really concerned with the quality of people that you're caught on Facebook with or your social media platform? Do you love to name drop big names in conversations or can't help but let everyone know what you know on the subject to make sure that you're seen as smart in front of everybody? If you wouldn't accept that from King Jesus, why should you accept that from yourself? And doesn't ever have a lot of cash on hand. Jesus was penniless. But perfect. Jesus was penniless. Let, yes, yet he was rich and God funded his entire life. Money corrupts the pure holds back the called and will twist every well-intentioned relationship. I think Jesus showed it, showed us it was better to let God hold on to his bank account and how much money that was in it instead of him holding on to it and stewarding it himself. The way kings do that is to invest their money into the kingdom as soon as they receive it in the land of the living instead of storing it in their barns until they die. Because he is fully responsible and fully leveraged for the advancement of other people. Would you argue with me that King Jesus' life was leveraged for other people? It was fully leveraged for other people. Christian? Jesus was securely seated son, just like you. He was our model. 
His entire life was leveraged and put at full risk so that someone else would advance, increase, and meet the potential in their life. Is that your life? Is that your kingship? Where's your resources spent? Where's your time spent? Where's your money spent? Where's your influence and authority? Is it leveraged for the sole purpose of benefiting others in every way? Then you'll be a king like Jesus. But if not, you still got some work to do. And that's how we get there. His time is devoted to spending time learning more of the word. If you simply get into the word every day, the word's going to get into you every day. So don't be a coward. Open your word and write it down. It's going to take you every single day. See how that works? He is never found without a word to give on the spot. We're winding this down now and. You've already proven to yourself that you can carry the word around with you, care about the word, pay thousands of dollars for things. I mean, think about this for a minute. Is there anything in your life, right, that you could care about to keep on your person, to care thousands, pay thousands of dollars for, to make sure that it stays in good condition in your pocket? All the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's your pocket idol. We call it iPhones or whatever you want to call it. You can do it when the word of God becomes more valuable than that. You've already demonstrated you can do this. You just haven't demonstrated whether you can do it with what is the most valuable in your life. You see, we neglect what is not valuable to us. We, we spend the most of our efforts, time, resources, and everything on where our treasure is. Wow. So you may want to stop lying to yourself that you cannot carry around a Bible for more than a day. Because that's what kings do. Because he gets up every day and searches the word for fresh revelation and eager anticipation with directional commands. Do you like to hear people command you? <laughs> You see, you trust Jesus's commands because let's be honest, you choose when you listen to them or not. But if you remove that, you wouldn't like them as much until you saw the fruit of them. Living on last month's direction is like running a race without drinking water. And that's what you're doing. It's possible for a little while, but eventually you're going to die. King Jesus said, I have food you know not of. Why do you think he ate the word daily? God's kings live on a different diet. It's called manna, daily supernatural provision. And you need to stop running your race without drinking from the wellspring of life. Because you need to do the word, whether it comforts you or crucifies you. When's the last time that this entire creation saw the most amazing resurrection power from the grave right after a righteous man died for you 
What happens when a righteous king dies for the ones on his left and his right? It brings life. The word of God is no good unless you do it. It'll comfort you at times and crucify you at others, but it never fails to bring life to your spirit, man, and it always accomplishes what God sends it to do. Amen? Amen. Yeah. I'm going to leave you with these last two scriptures. Romans 8, 27. And he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined or predetermined to be conformed into the image of Adam. (laughs) Nope. Not Adam. Of the second Adam. Son. You see, it makes sense to you that God will return you back and, and restore your image to Adam before the fall. But it makes no logical sense to you that he restore you to the image of his son, King Jesus. And that's what he's trying to get through to you. He made a better way to a better garden for a better kingdom. And that kingdom is you. In order that we might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. First. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he also called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he didn't stop there. He also glorified. Deuteronomy 17, 19 tells you what happens when you live like this. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it all of his days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and the statutes and doing them. Did you see that? When he did these things, he would learn to fear the Lord. So it wasn't a requirement beforehand. It was a product of. That his heart may not be lifted above his brother's. And that he may not turn aside from the commandments, either to the right or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom and his children as well in all of Israel. Last slide, John. The product of what happens when God makes a king is that his heart will be humble, that his life will be submitted, and that he will not fall away. And that those he leads will be fruitful unto the end. What an amazing reward for you. All of that benefits you and your kingdom and those in the kingdom that you're responsible for. Is that not good news, saints? In these 10 kingmakers, I challenge you to take these with you today and do them and see what happens. Do them and suffer the consequences. Do them and eat the fruit of it and you will finally be a king and there'll be a king in this land. By definition, do you see many kings in the land? Deuteronomy 17 says, this is a king. I don't see many kings in the land. 
Therefore, we live in something like the time of the judges when men did what was right in their own eyes and there was no king. But God is a king maker and he's making one out of you because this land desperately needs them. And where there is a godly king, there will be a godly kingdom and that kingdom will advance, increase and flourish. And that's why he brought you here and snatched you out of Egypt. Stand with me.